So, what's the hidden connection in this week's Parsha between Nimrod and Avraham? Was the Tower of Babel one big nuclear missile silo? Finally, can you actually have a good story without a bad guy? These questions and more on this week's Tanakh Talks podcast. Hi, welcome to listening to the Tanakh Talks podcast, broadcasting from the hills of Jerusalem. My name is Rabbi Yaakov Beasley. It is the day before Parsha Noah, and today we're going to be looking at one of the most fascinating stories in the Tanakh, really a story that baffles and confounds everybody who reads it, the story of the Tower of Babel, Migdal Babel. There's a rule I learned several years ago. The more different opinions in the commentators on any particular text or story, that generally means the less of an idea they actually have what's going on. There's a famous introduction of the commentator, the Orachim, to Numbers, Bamidbar 20, the story of Moshe's sin, the one that prevented him from entering the land of Israel. And he begins by saying, here's 10 different interpretations of what this sin is. And he goes, I'm afraid to write number 11. He does anyways, but at least he acknowledges that everybody is trying to figure out what's going on, and yet the text itself is keeping it obscure. Here we are actually confounded because not only do I not know what the people who built the tower did wrong, but rather, did they do anything wrong at all? The story is very familiar to us. If you read it carefully, you'll see that it divides into two even halves. We have the half of the people who are building the tower. It starts off the world as one language, one same words. They journey from the east. They find a valley. They settle there. They say, let's make make bricks. And then once they make bricks, let's build a city and we'll make a tower. And then the second half is God's reaction, which is God comes down. They're trying to go up, and now in classic structure, God comes down to them. God comes down to see the city and the tower, repetition of the, that they had built. God said, hey, there's one people with one language. And now what are they intending to do? Let's confuse their language, and God then scatters them. And they go back, end up really back where they started. They are start scattered, they gather together to build bricks, city, tower, to go up to heaven. God comes down, the city, the tower are ignored, but people themselves are rescattered over the earth. The story actually takes place after the flood of Noah, as we know. We have the sad story that we're going to deal with on tomorrow night, hopefully. The story of the drunken sailor, Noah getting drunk in his tent, and the tragic results that occur from that final story in chapter 9. Then we talk about humanity's really tentative attempts to replenish the world. And they slowly create families, and families grow into larger families, and clans, which become tribes, and eventually tribes become nations. The question that we should have when we read this story, however, is, what's going on? On one hand, we see people gathering together, yet from God's reaction, it appears that they're not entirely innocent. He feels the need, if not to punish them, at least to scatter them. What did they do wrong? What was their intention in building the tower? What was their purpose? Why was God upset with what they were doing? And why does he not just destroy the tower? How does his response of changing their languages, why is that so important? And finally, they're unified. Finally, they're getting along. In fact, as the Medrash has said, they declared all property ownerless. They learned the lesson of the Midrash. Why did the flood occur? Because people stole from each other. And they're, what the lesson they learned, according to one version of the, in the Midrash says, is that they said, well, people stole from each other because it was private property. Therefore, we should make everything public, almost a proto-communist approach. Everything should belong to everybody. 
But if unity and brotherhood really is something the Torah is trying to inculcate among humanity, then why does God so blatantly undermine it? This is really the first attempt of people working together in the text. Up until now, we've seen people fighting each other. So with all these questions in mind, what happened? Let's take a look at the possibilities. The first commentary we're going to look at is Rashi, and Rashi is very simple. They gather together the unified. The purpose of unifying was to rebel against God. Rashi says, and this is from the first Rashi, there is a united cause. They gather together this unified council. It's not acceptable he is taken to heavens for himself. Let us go up to heavens and we will wage war against him. According to Rabbi Bachi, this is actually a technical advice to prevent punishment from coming down to heaven again. I think that the possibility that, why are they building a tower? Well, we got flooded. And what do you do in the time of a flood? You move to the high ground. Anakin should have learned that lesson. So, obviously, if you create enough structures that are high enough, then the floods will no longer get to you. Fascinating, Rav Yonatan Ebeshitz in the Tiferi Yonatan suggested that the tower is actually a missile launch pad. could send weapons against the heaven, as it were. Big nuclear missile silo. There's another approach, and it's found in the Midrash. Very famous one that I think everybody who learned the story as a child knows that there's a social problem here. There is another Midrash that emphasizes the social problem as opposed to the rebellious problem. They made bricks and they fired them, and then they built this, the Midrash and Midrash in Pirkei Rebbe Eliezer, chapter 24. So they made bricks, they fired them like a potter until they built it seven miles high. And if a person fell and died, they would not even notice. Their hearts would not go out to them. But if a brick fell, they would sit shiva. They would sit, they would weep. And the Midrash concludes, Avram ben Terach, i.e. Abraham, passed by and sees them building the city, and he, there he cursed them in the name of God. We're going to come back to the end of that Midrash, but we can see the beginning of the Midrash says this is a social problem among how people treat other people. The Ibn Ezra is actually one of the first who appreciates the ambiguity and the neutrality of the actual text. The Ibn Ezra writes, The builders of the tower were not so foolish as to believe they could actually go up to heaven. The Torah itself said that their desire is just to build a great city to dwell in, to erect a high tower. That would be a glorious sign to mark the city's position for those who travel from it, like shepherds. Hey, the far as you can look, you can see this tower. That is, that's our city. That's where we're proud of. It's the CN Tower in Toronto. It's the Empire Trade Building in New York. The Eiffel Tower. Whatever, every city has its monument that it likes to be known by. Bavel would be no different. And of course, the tower would also make them immortal. This is part of man's quest for immortality that is built in. We try to, as it were, transcend our earthly bounds. And we do so by building great things. And this is one of the ways that they attempt to do so. This is described in biblical texts as to make oneself a name. He goes on to say that, you know, this is, that it was trying to go up to heaven. This is hyperbole. This is a metaphor. They weren't trying to rebel against heaven. They knew they couldn't rebel against God. So the Ebenezer is actually the first to recognize the neutrality, but he doesn't really address, if that's the case, why does God come down and scatter them among? The Nitziv, Rabbi Naftali Tzvi Yehuda Berlin, in the Haimek Devar, here has a really fascinating read. And what he does is he's taking that idea from that last line of Pirkei Rebbezer that Avram Havinu went by and cursed it. He places it in the time frame. And he says, this is actually the tower that was the Midrashic fiery furnace that Abraham was thrown into. The Midrash says that Abraham, for refusing to bend to the norms of society, to conform to the wishes of the majority, is actually thrown into a fiery furnace by the king of the time, Nimrod. And, of course, according to the Midrash, he escapes. This story is based on the story in Daniel, where Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah are thrown into the fire. The same 
sort of story where Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babel, he builds this large tower that everybody is to bow down to, everybody is to submit to his rule, symbolized through this tower, and three Jews stand up to him, and they're thrown into the fire, but they emerge miraculously unscathed. The Midrash attributes the same thing as happening to Avram Avinu. And then Siv connects between that Midrash and our story. So the way he's interpreting it is that, yes, there's unity, but it's not just unity, it's uniformity. That the generation of the Tower of Babel wishes to establish this dictatorship that keeps a close guard on the people, i.e. the tower becomes now a control tower where everybody can look down like Sauron's mighty eye and see where everybody is in the city and what they're doing. Making ourselves a name, he interprets as their ability to control everybody's individual actions. And the fear of the population becoming dispersed has nothing to do with the fear of moving outside to expand and fill the earth, but rather that the people in power feel if people go beyond this grasp, their grasp, they will be unable to rule them, to control them. Men, and therefore their citizens, become unsupervised and thereby unrestrained. However, God does not want human beings to be treated like sheep. He wants their freedom. He wants their, them to maintain that sense of humanity. And therefore, he confounds their speech to scatter them to force, as it were, to prevent, as it were, the one ring from ruling them all. This is, this is something that is abhorrent to Judaism, the, the idea that we concentrate too much power in one hand of an individual. Even in the king, you can see as the king is introduced, he's introduced not with fanfare, but in the text, be very careful, look what the king can do. Do not let him expand his powers too greatly. Rav Yaakov Meidan, in fact, talks about, you know, this is not one nation, but rather a nation of one. Just like in Stalinist Russia, Rav Yaakov Meidan writes, yes, one nation, but one nation meant to reflect the wheel of one person. The same way that Louis XIV, the Sun King, said, l'état c'est moi, I am the state, I am the representative of the state, therefore the state revolves all around my wishes. Not safa achad, but rather safa shelachad, in Rav Meidan's beautiful phrase. One person speaks for everybody. Dr. Jordan Peterson, who along with John Tavares and my mother are my favorite Canadians of all time, he actually spent his career, he began his career by studying totalitarian regimes. And more important, the question, why do ordinary individuals willingly live under such regimes? Because we know that it wasn't just one man came and he forced his will, but rather Hitler's elected and Stalin was so popular and people mourned his death. And how does this happen? We see this all the time. The famous books, Hitler's Willing Executioners, you see the atrocities, but they're not committed by one person. There's millions of people involved in this totalitarian regime and impressing each other. How does this happen? One of the ideas that Peterson uses to explain how this occurs is that we have always have two realms or domains. We have the domain of the known, the area that we know that we control, and the domain of the unknown, the area that we don't control. When we're a child, of course, we try to, you know, we're very comfortable exploring. But as we grow up, we try to establish our level of competence and mastery over our own little domain. And slow, and yet if we knew everything and there was no uncertainty whatsoever, we also go crazy. We also start to lose that essential part of the humanity. We always have to find that balance between our need for control and security and safety with our need to explore and to try to grow and try to develop, even though change can come at cost and risk. And he uses the Tower of Babel as the perfect metaphor for what totalitarian societies decide to do. On one hand, they try to control and 
Even the most benevolent totalitarian societies, they try to control every aspect of their citizens' lives, protect them, give them security, yet it, they never progress and they never go forward because they can't, because limited their scope to what is known as opposed to ability to deal with the unknown. Another fascinating thought. I want to finish with one final thought, and this comes from really motivated by Don Yitzchak Abarbanel, who makes a point of saying, this is also said by Rav Hirsch, that the they didn't do anything wrong, but he could God, is, as it were, was ro'et nolad. He sees the future. He sees that there's something in the intent that's problematic. There's a tension here. And I'll start with just a very quick note by Dr. Yoni Grossman in his new book on Genesis that I keep mentioning came out, The Genocration Story of Beginnings, translated into English by Magid Press. And he mentions that the way God punishes them, there's beautiful parallelism between that wording and the wording of how God says, let me go and see what's going on in the garden. And the same punishment is given to them. The wording is exactly the same. And he suggested that what they are trying to do is rebuild the Garden of Eden through the building of the city. They're, at this point in time, their building of a city involves their working and guarding it. The Abarbanel notes, the building of cities and the advancement of technology often brings with it tremendous, tremendous difficulties. He says this actually earlier in his commentary on Brasheet, the Barbernell, being a person who lived among the great courts of Spain, the finance minister for Ferdinand and Isabella at the end of the 15th century, so he knew what was considered cultured in the height of civilization. And what he writes, actually, I think predates Rousseau later on, who writes about the noble savage. You know, man is really just the, really has all his needs taken care of for him. It's only civilization's artifices that make him crafty and um, less than hold and true to himself. The Abarbanel writes, the overall intention of this section, this is back in um, chapter 3, is informs God creates man in his intellectual image. He creates everything that he needs for his existence. The earth, if we simply let it be, would have enough fruit on the trees and food and drink and there's water. Everything's available in nature. We don't need to have human effort and activity, which is a really very fascinating statement. Man should not be troubling his soul for his physical needs. It's all there. But rather to perfect his soul, i.e. your moral and ethical and intellectual dimensions for what you've been created. And therefore God originally surrounded him with all the natural things that he needs. He doesn't not to be drawing after luxuries require work. Yet he gives man his own free will. And men generally try to spend so much time trying to on luxuries and things that are unnecessary for their physical happiness that they come to ignore their spiritual side because of this emphasis on their physicality. So the Barbernell seems to say here, they didn't need to build a city. Man could have stayed being shepherds. This is what the Barbernell believes to be true. It's interesting. I'm not sure that this is an approach that is taken by Jewish thinkers. There's no question Rav Soloveitchik, who describes Adam 1, the Adam of chapter 1, who is to meant to go out and conquer the earth and with technology and advancements and diseases conquered and so many great things that man's creativity has brought him. You know, that is man living in God's image, according to Rabbi Soloveitchik, in, the, in one of the highest um, forms of being a divine being is that we are creators just like God. Yet, I do think it's fair, however, to say that there, we always have to be hesitant when we have scientific advancement. And I'll finish with a quote from the physicist Richard Feynman for today. Richard Feynman says, you know, he goes, Once I was in Hawaii, I was taken to see a Buddhist temple. And the temple said, I'm going to tell you something you're never going to forget. 
To every man is given the key to the gates of heaven. The same key opens the gates of hell. And so it is, writes Richard Feynman, with science. In a way, it is a key to the gates of heaven. And the same key opens the gates to hell. We don't have instructions which one, which gate is the one to heaven, which one is to hell. We can choose to throw away the key. But do we want to do that never have a gate to heaven? Or so we struggle with the problem as to which way is the best way to use the key. So Feynman, of course, being one of the physicists involved uh, in developing the atomic bomb, he knew in, he knew the consequences. Nuclear power is the cleanest form of energy and is possibly the one that we, should, I would argue, is the one we should be using the most, okay, it's, as opposed to coal and oil and everything we're working on. Yet there's no question the advancements in nuclear energy led to the atomic bomb, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the Iranian threat, the North Korean threat that we live with nowadays. So, with that thought in mind, I all one of the things I always love about teaching Bible, about teaching Torah, is there are times where you really confront your own humility. The text just is not a catechism. It's like, this is what the story is about. It doesn't always do that. It make the text doesn't always give you a simple answer. Sometimes you have to really think these things through. And as I told my students this week in Lave when we talked in the Parsha class, I, every year I don't know what the answer is. I change my mind every year which interpretation is most convincing. Is the Every year I look at this story anew with new eyes, and I'm so thankful to be able to do that because there are times you look at stories and, oh, I know this story and I can go on. I've learned this. Thank God we have the ability that these things are Hadashim Kaboker. They're like new every single time we approach them, and we have to rethink them again and again. It keeps us fresh, it keeps us young. With that thought in mind, I want to wish everybody a Shabbat Shalom and happy learning.